Hello and welcome to Happy Place with me, Fern Cotton. This is the show that doesn't shy away from tackling big emotions. Today, I'm chatting to Spencer Matthews. It's part of the reason why I'm quite grateful that I was the age that I was when he died was it never hit me as hard as, you know, it could have done because I never really believed it. You know, when I was called up to my parents' room and they said Michael's gone missing on the mountain and they were visibly crushed. I didn't really understand why they were crushed. I I just thought, well, let me know when you find him type thing. It wasn't uh, nobody survives the night on Everest, you know. It was like I, I didn't know that, you know. To me, Michael was this unstoppable force of nature and there's no chance that his life could be taken from him. Spencer was 10 years old when his brother died, having just reached the summit of Mount Everest. Over two decades later, Spencer decided to retrace his brother's steps in the hope of recovering his body, and in the process pieced together an image of who his brother was. This groundbreaking search and recovery mission has been documented in the most beautiful film called Finding Michael. Oh, this documentary completely blew me away. It was deeply, deeply moving to see Spencer go on this incredible mission to try and find his brother's body. And it felt like a real privilege to see the intimate moments of Spencer's personal discovery, working through loads of emotions and also dealing with how that was going to affect his family as well. It's so beautifully shot and just a very, very special film. Now, a quick warning that towards the end of this chat, we do talk about how the film ends. So if you want to go away and watch the film first, that is totally fine. Although I have to say, I think hearing Spencer's recount of it will only make the documentary more powerful for you. We had this chat just a few days before the film came out, and it honestly felt like the greatest privilege hearing Spencer reflect on everything that he's experienced. And I really hope you love this chat as much as I did. Mom deserves better than a drugstore card. This Mother's Day, surprise her with a truly special personalized card from Moonpig. Add your favorite photos, a heartfelt message, and we'll even mail it for you the same day, all for just $5. From mom to grandma, we have something to celebrate every mom in your life. Every mom deserves a Moonpig card. Get 50% off your first card at Moonpig.com. Moonpig.com Okay, let's do it. Here's the show. Spencer Matthews, how are you? Very well, thank you, Fern. Good. You've had one hell of a busy 12 months. You have welcomed a new baby into your family. Yeah. How's little Otto doing? He's fantastic. Um, different to the other two. Really smiley from a, from a really young age and just kind of seems happy enough. His teeth came really late uh, and they kind of just, four just came out at once and it, there was this kind of sense of relief. He was a bit uncomfortable around that. But no, he's uh, he's great. Like if all of them... Well, like, like he, he he's giving us that kind of hope for the fourth almost. Are you gonna go? Are you gonna go again? I think I think we I think we might. You know, you wow. can't you can't rule it out. Mm. 
but the, the, we're not we're not in a rush, uh, obviously, yeah. to, to to kind of do so. But um, but no, I think I think we I think we probably will. Yeah. yeah. Why not? Yeah. Yeah. Well, because you know, Otto's given us that. You know, if it was another, the other two were, were much harder. <laughs> so, and and you know, we for a while we had three kids under four. Yeah, that is full on, man. It is quite, yeah. Really full on. Maybe it's that thing of the third kid in a cliche way just has to crack on with life because there's two other kids there, mm. and then the fourth's even more chilled out. Yeah, I was the third. Well, okay, dad's second marriage, so you know, I was the third of three boys, and yeah, big age difference and stuff, and. The third's where it's at, isn't it? That's, yeah. that's what you want. Yeah. Let's just, that's that's the quote. Yeah. That's <laughs> it. We're done. <laughs> We're done. Um, but not only have you welcomed beautiful new life into the world, but you've also taken on this monumental mission of looking for your brother Michael's body on Mount Everest, which is a huge undertaking. And I think what struck me first when I heard that you were setting off on this mission is how willing you've been to turn towards that pain. Because I think many people, when they've suffered that level of loss, it would shudder at even the words Mount Everest, let alone going there, setting up camp there, and then taking on this mission. Did you feel a large level of discomfort moving towards the pain? It's something I hadn't done before. So because Michael died when I was 10, I never really processed the loss in a kind of normal way. Also, the circumstances surrounding his death were were quite strange. At the time, we were getting reports back from other climbers on the 1999 expedition that, you know, there were very serious problems with oxygen and that uh, their rotations were unusual and that people were exhausted in kind of, you know, meaningless ways. Uh, and therefore, he seemed at a kind of natural disadvantage from from the get-go, um, which was a shame. We were never able to prove any negligence. And, you know, that's not really what the film is about. No. But, but, you know, I kind of grew up with the thought that Michael had been killed, not that Michael had had an accident. And I think the two are quite different. So, you know, I grew up with a fair amount of resentment and kind of hatred towards certain people, you know, certain individuals, um, which I think is is quite you know, understandable perhaps, but also quite unhealthy, um, you know, had Michael fallen and died, um, I don't think it would have been um, as difficult to get over. You know, it would have been hard, of course, but it wouldn't have been, there wouldn't have been anyone to blame but him. And of course, you wouldn't blame him for that. And, you know, the family understand and realise that Everest, claims lives and is obviously a dangerous place but when you throw all that into the mix as well you you can't help but but feel that it could have been avoided and I suppose that made me upset you know and angry. I mean 10 is an incredible it's an incredibly young age to to experience something like that with so much I guess with such a lack of information known for you to piece together this puzzle and to process it how did you grieve at the age of 10? Um, just by missing him, I suppose, and stuff. But I didn't really grieve, you know. It was um, making the film was, you know, a, a kind of grieving process for me. Um, I think I was protected from it quite a lot as a, as a kid, and I would probably do the same for my kids. You know, it wasn't a prominent discussion point. You know, the 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 case against 
the climbing company was kept, you know, quite far away from me, obviously, because I, I was I was young. So, you know, we had a memorial service for him. 500 people attended his memorial service, age 22. You know, he was the youngest Brit at the time to, to reach the summit of Mount Everest and, and was kind of a remarkable person. Obviously, everybody, you know, loves their own siblings and has high opinions of their own family. But I just... Um, you know, I couldn't have kind of loved and respected him more. And it's part of the reason why I'm quite grateful that I was the age that I was when he died was because I never, I never really, um, it never hit me as hard as, you know, it could have done because I never really believed it. You know, when I was called up to my parents' room and they said, Michael's gone missing on the mountain and they were visibly crushed. I didn't really understand why they were crushed. I, I just thought, well, let me know when you find him type thing. It wasn't uh, nobody survives the night on Everest. You know, it was like I, I didn't know that, you know, to me, Michael was this, you know, unstoppable force of nature and there's no chance that his life could be taken from him. Uh, and so, you know, it was all quite a juvenile way of seeing things. But in many ways that protected me from, you know, the, the pain that, that never came in in as aggressive a way as it did for the rest of my family. Mm. But you obviously had an understanding that it, it impacted you and your whole family forever. You know, that yeah. that changed things. And you say in this incredible documentary that, that you've it? made. Yes. Oh. oh my God. I mean, I I don't even know how to describe it. I, I watched it last night. I was transfixed. I barely blinked. I don't think I breathed for half of it. And it's, it's you've just done a beautiful job. It's it's incredible, oh, incredible. You'd have, you'd have to give that credit to to Tom Beard and and the editors. Um, but he he's the most phenomenal director, and and I I loved spending time with him and the team. This is the first time that any anything that I've made, you know, in television. The, the is it's it's really personal and meaningful to me obviously so i've never before felt the pressure of almost needing people to to not necessarily like it but just to connect with it in some way you know it's two years in the making and um it's uh it's been it has been amazing for, for, for me it has really helped me process what happened to him and and and, and move through it and i don't mean to sound like i've been carrying around this you know, grey storm cloud my whole life. It's not quite like that. There has been this hatred and resentment kind of within me, but it's nice to, you know, evolve and grow through that. I just feel like in, I'm in such a better place with it, having understood more about just him. You know, before making the film, I'd never seen him on camera before. I found this such an amazing part of the documentary because you reconnected or you connected with some of your brother's fellow climbers who had unbelievable amounts of raw footage of your brother on this climb and really intimate moments of him in the tent. They were sort of mucking about and chatting, really informal moments. And you'd never seen him on video. Well, I imagine that, and this came up the other day, actually, because uh, I, I interviewed Dave Rodney for Big Fish, um, one of my podcasts, and he was on the 1999 expedition and he had all this footage and it did occur to me that, you know, how come I've never seen this? And, yeah. uh, and, and, you know, it kind of, I'd not seen it because it was shown to the family um, when I was a kid again, you know, and they had seen it 20 years ago and we'd kind of just moved through it. And, you know, I, I never knew about it. 
and Dave very kindly said to me the other day, he's like, you know, I, I had always hoped that there would come a time when you would call me or, you know, want to know more. So I flew to Canada and, and you know, I watched all this footage with him and it's the first time I've heard Mike's voice since I was 10, you know. So it was kind of, you know, I tend to kind of smile and, you know, laugh, I guess, when I when I feel emotional. But the whole thing felt like amazing to me. And obviously the fact that he did record their climb made making the film possible, you know. And for those who are kind enough to watch the film... The 1999 expedition runs, you know, in tandem to our expedition, you know, the whole way into the mountain, then the whole way up the mountain. That is the most powerful thing to watch. Like, you are literally tracing his final footsteps. You swim in the same stream, you play on the same pool table, you go to the same temple and pray. I mean, I found it overwhelming to watch that. How was it for you knowing you were following that exact path? I loved it. And it gave me a real sense of who he was, you know, because obviously because of the age gap, we were never able to do things like that together. But it gave me a real taste for what he loved. You know, it was amazing. You know, the the trek into base camp, if, uh, if you're into that kind of thing, you've got to do it. It's like it's the most beautiful thing. And I really didn't expect it to be. I kind of thought it would be the boring bit, you know, to, to get to the mountain. But actually, like, when we got to the mountain, you're there for four and a half weeks I was at base camp. And that is a really long time to yeah. be at base camp. And so you kind of, you know, I wish the trek was longer almost because the trek was amazing. You know, you can't, I don't know how long we have or how relevant this is, but one of the most amazing parts of the trek was we we came across this town called Namche Bazaar. And... Um, I, th- I believe it's at about fifteen thousand feet. So quite high, you know. It's like you're you're up, you're well, well into the clouds. So you know, you look down on the clouds, and you've been trekking all day. You've been trekking for kind of nine hours and taking it quite easy at this stage because you're pretty high, and people are, you know, some people faint, and you know, it's it's you're at altitude at this stage. You know, this is where you 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 take it easy, um, and you're around this corner and you come into this town and there's kids like going to school and there's there's like a pool bar with and a pizzeria and cafes and a bakery and it's like where the hell is this you know like and like these people live there permanently and there's no roads so you can't drive to it you have wow. to walk to it it's you know it's 50 60 kilometers from the next nearest civilization type thing and you know we went out and had a pizza and played pool and like the crew were drinking beers and we were just having like a really fun time and it's kind of like we are literally in the middle of nowhere and it was kind of and then you had that sensation that you know Mike and Jamie had that exact same night you know and that's in the film and it's kind of it was just it was just cool you know i'm sure you know many people have have, have trekked to base camp and yeah i would i would really i would really advise it we did, we made we did our best to stay in the same tea rooms, the same hostels, the same everything that he he stayed in. We actually met a woman who uh, was in charge of this particular hostel back when he wow. uh, climbed, and um, she actually wouldn't appear on camera. She was really nervous, uh, which is a shame. But mm. but uh, but you know, she claims to even you know remember them, and we showed them photos, and she cried her eyes out. And you know, wow. I just the whole thing is um, it was just a really awesome time in in my life, and. Shame about the timing, obviously, with, with Otto. Um, I really missed my family and was in touch with them. Because he was, what, eight days old? I think so, yeah, yeah, eight days old about, about that. But, you know, we um, I wouldn't have been able to do it or make the project, you know, without Vogue's, you know, kind of unwavering full yeah. support. She would have done the same thing. She thought the idea of recovering Mike was a phenomenal one. 
you know, she was a huge supporter of this, which of course was, you know, I, I joke in the film that had it been our first kid, obviously, I think we would have probably, <laughs> she would have probably taken issue. You wouldn't have got away with that, I no, don't think. No, no. Um, <laughs> but, you know, I think, I think we've been parents now for nearly five years and we're kind of in the swing <clears> of stuff. <throat> and those, you know, first... Uh, maybe I'll get in trouble for saying this, but those first, you know, month or so for, for the for the dad can be a bit of a, you know, like the, the child is far more attached to mum and, you know, uh, you feel a bit left out, actually. So the fact that the fact that the the fact that this uh, coincided with that, we had also pushed the project by a year already. We couldn't quite get the ducks in the row um, for the 2021 season. NIMS wasn't available. And, 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 you know, we in the back of my mind, we had to do it with him. And so we pushed it by a year. And obviously at that time, we didn't know that Vogue would be pregnant at the time of the new departure. So, And this is all because obviously you have to have the right weather conditions to be able to climb Mount yeah. Everest. It, it, you know, they have to be impeccable conditions to even attempt yeah. doing what you guys did. And It's called cat- summit season. Summit season. Yeah, yeah. So you, and- can't, you can't climb Everest outside of summit season. Obviously, this is... I've I've been told to say one of the highest search and recovery missions in history, although it is thought to be the highest. Wow. So the search and recovery team had to go to the summit to search, you know, twice. Mm. So big mission. Yeah. So I had to do it at the right time. Because from your understanding, your brother lost his life just after he'd summited on his descent back down. Yeah. Uh, but somewhere between the South Summit and the balcony, yeah. we believed. And the catalyst for this search was a photo that was sent to you that felt like it could be a lead to some kind of hope that you could find Michael's body, bring him home for a a proper farewell. And this photo turned up, it was from 2017. And was that the first time you had the idea to go and go on this search mission? I didn't even realise search missions existed. Wow. Um, well, you know, searching is one thing. I, I didn't realise that a search and recovery from Everest yeah. was possible. It wasn't, I don't think, in 1999. I think my dad explored that possibility. But it is a relatively recent thing for helicopters to be able to fly to Camp 2. And between base camp, where helicopters come in and out all the time, and Camp 2 is the Kumbu Icefall, the most dangerous part of the mountain. Um, it's a... Glacier, and if you imagine a kind of stream uh, or a waterfall that's kind of flowing down the mountain, that's what it is, but it's frozen. And so it is constantly moving, but, you know, it may only move by a metre every day, uh, but then it may not move for five, six days, and, and it'll and it'll suddenly just, just shift. Typically, that happens during the day, so climbers, you know, go through it at night when it's as cold as it can be, as frozen as it could be. But people lose their lives in the Kumbu Icefall all the time and recovering a body through the icefall. I don't want to say it's impossible because I like to think that people can achieve, you know, anything they set their mind to, but it would be very difficult to carry a body through the icefall. It's, um, you're going across those rickety ladders and everything is um, can be quite steep and bits and bobs are falling all over you. You know, it would be to be carrying a 200 kilo, what's essentially a block of ice through there requires many men and... I don't see how you're getting that over the ladder. So, you know, you need to get to camp two and that's a recent thing. So uh, although I think that body recoveries probably won't become common practice, they are possible now. And yeah, this photo was the catalyst because it came with an offer to to look to, to recover him as well. We received this photo and, you know, we all agreed that it looked like it could be Michael. The guy had said, 
you know, the, that he could recover this body for us, you know, for this much money in this amount of time. And it was all felt quite rushed. And obviously there's no guarantee of it being Michael, you know, so we went back and we said, well, you know, can you turn the body over and take a photo? You know, we can't, we can't see that it's him. And the whole thing began to feel just a, a bit rushed and not, not, not so much our style, right? But it had planted the seed that, Christ, if that is Michael, then we can go and get him. You know, he is in plain sight. And maybe that's something that I'll explore. And that's when I began to think about it and began to talk to the family about it. And, you know, so that was in 2017 and um, weren't working on it constantly, but just, you know, began began talking to people who, who knew and, you know, got, got the ball rolling. I mean, obviously... Grief never leaves you and anyone who's experienced it will have that feeling and it will vary in how it manifests and how you deal with it. But did you worry that revisiting this time would stir up old feelings for you and your family that that might not be so welcome or would be very distressing for you? Yeah, I hadn't considered even failure like when we left. And it was only when the first search and recovery mission failed that I began to think, God, this could actually cause some harm to people in my family because we're all, you know, waiting and, you know, gathered around with Michael prominent in our thoughts again. And I've offered up all this hope to my mum, as an example, you know, that we'll bring him home. And that's kind of the first time that I began to think, you know, shit, we have to find him. You yeah. Know? <laughs> because, like... I'm a naturally very optimistic person in business, in life, and, you know, with this as well. And Nims is as well. So, you know, the early conversations were like, we'll find him, brother. You know, and I was like, great, well, let's go, you know. <laughs> so, so you know, so 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 that's that's exactly what we did. And we went out and, and, you know, with that in mind. But, you know, when that first mission failed, I thought, you know, that that began to, to twist me up a little bit. Because then, you know, we know we've only got one, you know, one bullet left and, 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 you know, it better work type thing. So the idea I say in the film, I think, of making my mum cry, you know, all over again was 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 not a welcome thought. No. And, and you'd also mentioned in the documentary that at the time, your family's coping mechanism had sort of collectively been, we've just got to get on with it. So was there a sense that you'd, I don't know, maybe as a family buried some of the feelings a bit and they hadn't resurfaced since that time? Yeah, I mean, we as... You know, I can't speak for all families that have lost a loved one, but, you know, we keep him alive in our thoughts a fair amount. It's his, it's his birthday coming up on the 4th of March. Film comes out on the 3rd, which is a complete coincidence, wow. by the way. Yeah, yeah. So, so I like it when that happens. I know, yeah. I, I was kind of surprised because they were moving the date around, the TX date around. It landed on the 3rd. And, yeah, his birthday is the following day on a Saturday. Our family always send each other, you know, big bunches of red roses on his on his birthday and... You know, we, we, we have photos of him all over the house. I, I kind of, I'm not a very religious person, but like, but you know, I, I believe in spirituality and, and, and stuff. And I, I find myself praying to him sometimes if uh, not only when I need something, but you know, if like, if you're in like a really tricky yeah spot and, you know, I've done some of these, uh, you know, I'd, hopefully I'll be able to talk to you about this um, foundation that we set up in his name, Michael Matthews Foundation. But in order to raise money for those, you know, both my brother and his wife and, and myself have kind of ran and, and, and competed in some, some, some races, you know, um, over the world. And, and some of them have been, you know, really difficult. And I kind of find myself praying to, to Michael or talking to Michael and, uh, and you kind of get that second win. So I suppose he's, uh, He's always had a presence in my life. I went surfing once when I was a kid. 
and I wasn't ready for it at all. And the waves were massive and I was really scared. Like I just, you know, I genuinely thought I was going to drown, die. And I was kind of gripping my surfboard, kind of praying for talking to him to just get me back to the beach safely. I was showing off basically to a bunch of kids who knew how to surf and I went out I'd never surfed before in my life. And like, <laughs> it was, it was just horrific. I hated it so much. Um, and I was kind of saying, you know, Mike, please, please get me home. And, uh, and you know, all of a sudden it was, it kind of felt to me like the waves just went away type thing and I was able to just swim in. So, you know, just times like that, I've always felt that he's been with me and I like to think that his, you know, adventurous spirit will, well, it certainly does live in me, but I hope it lives, you know, in my kids as well. And I think at the, you know, the end of the film, I, w- I would love to see, a lot of people are saying that Otto looks just like Mike, which mm. is, which is lovely for me. And I love that. And, you know, if elements of Mike can live in my kids, I'd be, I'd be delighted. Mm. And how did that, whether you call it spiritual connection, whatever language you're comfortable with, feel being on the mountain because as you say in the documentary that's the closest you've been to him since you were a kid and that must have felt quite powerful it was amazing i i you know everest is a kind of bittersweet place you know those that have been there and spent time there will tell you that you know most people that go there i suppose either go just to get to base camp and have a coffee and leave because it is you know you're 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 just just shy of Kilimanjaro's summit essentially that's the the heights that you're at so in order to be to sustain life and live there is just is a nuisance right you're knackered easily it's very uncomfortable but it's also you know incredibly beautiful and it feels an interesting place to be and just knowing that he was a few hundred meters away from me at all times felt great to me but you know again I'm it was the nights that were hard you know it was just like the nights were bitterly cold, really uncomfortable. It's just like a kind of running joke. It was just, it, it was, it was really like by the time the helicopter came, you know, at the very end, we had all, we were, we were, <laughs> we were ready to, yeah. to get out of there. But, but it was, um, it was just, it was just really interesting and obviously feeling close to it. I've never once taken, you know, five weeks of my life just to just, you know, dedicate it to him and just be thinking about him you know, wanting to find him, retracing his steps, chatting to people about him all the time, being interviewed about him. You know, I've never done that before. So, you know, part of the reason for documenting the journey was that I just, I want people to connect to him in some way. I think what he did when he was 22 was completely remarkable. Yeah. You know, when I was 22, you know, I wasn't climbing Everest. Um, And I think it's kind of amazing because it, it it's a serious thing to do, particularly back in 1999, where, you know, kit was nothing like it is now. Oxygen, evidently, was temperamental. And weather windows were riskier. You know, you had less adequate technology. So, you know, it would say that it would be clear when it's not, you know, an hour later. And I think, you know, well, certainly what NIMS uses is pretty accurate, I think, you know, although I'm sure it's wrong sometimes, like most weather reports. You know, I just what I, what I mean to say is, these climbers would go out in the in the dead of night at kind of three three thirty in the morning uh, when the kumbu was frozen, and we would document that for people, particularly when the search crew were were going up. Experienced climbers and people who have climbed you know other large mountains and have you know been around it for for many years were visibly frightened, threatened by what's about to what they're about to go through. And you could see real 
you know, fear behind behind their eyes and discomfort, you know, before even going. And I was speaking to Dave again, his climbing partner from before, and he just said, Mike used to love the Kumbu Ice Fall, you know, and it was kind of like, I just find that interesting, right? And of course, it doesn't bother everyone and not, not everyone's frightened of it. But even the puja ceremony, which is this kind of religious, spiritual gathering before you go through the ice fall, is quite impactful. It's it's, it's pretty palpable, like mm. like the energy, and it's kind of like God. Okay, we're this is this is serious, you know. Yeah. Like, you know, but he, even at his age, you know, just just was confident, cool, loved it type thing, and it just you know it made me smile a bit. You know, I've always had this image of this all being very threatening and very awful, you know, for for him. But he actually loved it. He loved. You could see doing it in the video it. footage of, yeah. you know, when his climbing mates are talking to him and he's just walked across one of those treacherous ladders that you've spoken about and he's so carefree and thumbs up and smiling and it must have felt like you were learning I guess to about sort of a different side of him that you you hadn't experienced as a little brother yeah I just learned a lot about him yeah you know, even just just hearing him speak and watching him crack jokes in his tent at camp four and stuff you know he he obviously you know the comfort is that he would not have known that he was only hours away from his death but but, um, you know, he just seemed uh, like a really cool, solid guy that I would have loved to have grown up with and known better. There's a, a moment which relates to those final hours of his life that I know you've found very difficult. And that is the, the last photo taken of him. And he's reached the summit and he's on his way down. And this is a photo that you say in the documentary you hate. You can't look at this picture. What does it bring up when you look at it? Memories of how I was told that he died. So he looks incredibly uncomfortable and he looks like he can't really breathe. And then I just have this memory of Dave Rodney saying, well, you know, they had Russian tanks in a US system or vice versa, whichever it is. Um, and that, you know, they were, you know, at base camp, they were shaving off like the top of the bottles to try and make the two fit. And it's kind of like, in my mind, I'm thinking... You killed him with that attitude of not having the correct kit. We weren't ever able to prove certain things that we heard, but, you know, we have on pretty good authority that, you know, it was just so badly managed and that there were very serious concerns around oxygen. So I see him suffocating. You know, maybe that's not the case. But people who take pictures on the summit of Everest don't always look comfortable, but I feel like he would have been comfortable. Like he climbed Aconcagua and you know, very easily, far ahead of his guides, you know, in kind of record time. And everyone was giving him nicknames like the bull. And, you know, you could just easily charge forward and was just a very able climber, you know. So to see him in, in kind of miserable pain, clutching this prayer scarf, literally looking like he's praying for his life. And I never knew that it was a prayer scarf until I went to Everest. And so he's clinging on to this thing, presumably feeling like he's going to die. And it just makes me feel angry about the circumstance, right? A lot of people's photos on the summit of Everest are, you know, big thumbs up, smiling, we've done it. You know, it's supposed to be this incredible feeling of, you know, I've conquered the highest peak on earth. But for him, it looks like he's, you know, about to die. And it's, I just find it a bit gut-wrenching, you know, it's not, I, I, I for a long time thought it wasn't fair. And I need to be clear that we don't think it's not fair because Mike died. That's not the reason. I think it's not fair because his death could have easily been avoided. It's not the kind of thing where people go, yeah, but, 
you know, seven people die every year on Everest. Yes, they do. Uh, but seven people aren't deprived of oxygen and seven people aren't, you know, blah, 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 whatever else may have been the case. So this is very harsh what I'm about to say, but it's tr I grew up feeling that he had essentially been murdered. Although that's just for the record, you know, not the case. Nobody murdered Mike. That's how I felt as a teenager, you know, obviously not on purpose. Manslaughter perhaps would be a better way of putting it. But, you know, that's, I felt like he was taken from us by people who did a shit job. How have you shouldered that injustice and that anger? Um, I've never made the correlation between the alcoholism and that until just very recently. I had a kind of, I had a therapy session before heading out to the mountain because, um, I don't really know why. I just, I just thought it was kind of something that I should perhaps kind of explore because everyone kept saying like, how are you, how are you going to handle it when you get there? And, you know, don't you realize you're going to have to ID him? Like you're going to have to physically see his, you know, dead body, you know, frozen on the mountain. And I thought, you know, God, wouldn't it be nice to talk to somebody who's kind of done this before, but that's, that's nobody. Obviously there's nobody that's had that experience before. So I took uh, the advice of a good friend of mine and he just said, you know, why don't you go and just have a session with, with somebody and just talk about it, you know, and just see, see what comes up. And he was kind of uh, massively of the opinion. And I, I recently was interviewed by the Sunday Times magazine and they, they said the, the same thing. They were like, you're quite, um, they were like, I'm asking you quite like emotionally charged, like poignant questions and you're quite hardened by the whole thing. I would say together. I would never say hardened because I think yeah. you're really articulate in how you describe your feelings. But I think even through the documentary, you can see you hold it together. This guy that I saw said that he believes from, we spoke for three and a half hours uh, and he believes that I've been suppressing emotion my, my whole life, you know, because of, because of this loss. And, you know, whether he's right or wrong, it kind of just got me thinking. And, you know, the, the Matthews, I think it was described recently as a Matthews like family badge of honor is to not show any weakness. It's like, I'm not I'm not sure it's a kind of family badge of honor, but it certainly certainly is the case that when we were younger, like showing any kind of weakness felt wrong. There was no sympathy really for that kind of behavior. Not around the loss per se. I'm talking about like if you fell off a ladder and hurt yourself type thing, you know, any kind of crying, whinging, you know, would be perceived to be like, you know, I hope you didn't dent the floor type thing, you know, get on with it. Mm. Um, you know, and it was just a very, felt a very normal way to be brought up, you know, and, and we, we were a very kind of, you know, get on, get on with it and crack on. And if you hurt yourself, what's what crying's not going to fix it, you know, type thing. And so I don't know, just, I, I've, I've kind of lacked any kind of sympathy for others <laughs> my, my whole life. <laughs> and, you know, it has been funny at times, you know, my, my my close friends find it amusing, right, that I have little empathy and, and, and you know, and, and we, you know, I don't think it's necessarily a terrible thing either. It's quite useful in business. It's quite useful in certain things. But I think it's perhaps not so useful with your kids. You know, I think instilling in my kids that crying is weak is probably something that I won't do because I don't agree with it. But that's not to say that I would change the way I was brought up. I'm quite happy with the way that I am, if I'm honest. Uh, I just think that, you know, I think that I do have a kind of hardened view of of certain things. 
Um, and I guess it's probably related. And as for the alcoholism and, and the kind of abusing alcohol um, for most of my adult life, I've never felt comfortable having a reason behind that. You know, I've never really gone to therapy about that either. There was a few sessions and a few AA meetings and stuff like that, but nothing nothing major, like no continued support in that regard. And of course, the first thing that they say is, well, you know, of course it's completely to do with, you know, Michael's death. And I always found that really irritating. Why is that? I don't really know. I don't know. I don't want to blame... Not that it's him being blamed for anything, but I don't want to blame my good times, in inverted commas, or alcoholism or, or issues in my life with what happened to me as a kid. I've always been, I've never wanted to see it as a trauma, although although it obviously is. I'm only kind of coming to grips with a lot of this now. These are all kind of fresh feelings for me. Do you think that's because you're sober? Possibly, yeah. I don't think any of this would have been doable if I wasn't sober. It's very interesting because my husband's been for a very similar experience of alcoholism. Um, now he's been clean for 10 years, having the clarity to piece together his mum's very sudden death, how that impacted him, his past and history. And maybe there is this sense that you're sort of pickling yourself when you are drinking and you, yeah. you halt any... Pickling, I like. Yeah, you kind of halt any curiosity, I guess, or um, a willingness to dig around and look into it because it's painful. You don't want to do it, of course. Yeah, I think the two probably are related. Um, but I don't know. I've I've always been against that word trauma in my case. I've just not been comfortable with that. I don't know why. Um, I don't want any sympathy from anyone. I don't want any I don't want anyone to feel sorry for me. But what if it allowed you to honor what you've been through so you can I don't think anyone can ever properly heal from anything but you can work towards that. I think I'd be very open to that. I I mm. I, I would love to be a more kind of emotional person, I suppose. But yeah, maybe Does I'll go and, maybe I'll go and see this guy again. I don't know. Yeah. yeah, I I it doesn't scare me. It doesn't scare me. I think I think being in touch with your feelings and, and having a softer persona as a man is 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 a great thing. Not all the time, mind you. Like I think I think that I think that you know I don't really know what I think. I think I think I think I think it would be interesting to explore, and I think it's probably worth it. I think with things like alcoholism, trying to get to the bottom of it is probably more complicated for me than just stopping drinking. And if you stop drinking, then the problem is solved. Like as far as I'm concerned, but I think you know I, I I don't know. People say to me all the time, "Well, how did you just stop drinking?" And you know the answer is, one day I just I decided that I was going to stop drinking, right? And and I decided that I had a really detrimental relationship with alcohol that was damaging to my physical health, not so much my mental health. I don't think at the time, but just physical health. And I wanted my wife to be proud of me again, right? Or proud of me for the first time, I suppose. You know, she is an amazing woman. I love her. And there were times, because she hardly drinks, that my constant drinking was really apparent when we started to live together and spend more time together. And we'd watch a film and I'd have a, a whiskey on the rocks and she'd be like, are you going out later, or you know? And I, I just be like, no, just watching a film. Just a casual whiskey on the yeah, rocks. Yeah, yeah, no. And she, and, and then you know, I'd have another one, and she's like, she'd just be like, 
is it normal to be drinking kind of whiskey at home when we're just watching a film? And I'd just be like, I thought she was the weirdo. <laughs> I, I, I literally was just like, yeah, like everybody drinks like, you know, a fair amount. And she was <laughs> just like, on she, the rocks. she was like, I'm not sure that everybody drinks like, like you drink. And I was like, okay. Uh, and it took a while. And obviously it kind of got, you know, there were times when it was quite bad and there were other times it wasn't so bad. But, you know, I decided that to give myself the best chance of, of being you know, the person that I'd always hoped that I could become or, or, you know, fulfilling, you know, any kind of full potential. I'd give myself, give myself a real opportunity by, by stopping drinking. And I, I just loved it. Like I, I, you know, you watch all these Denzel Washington stories and Bradley Cooper stories and stuff. And it kind of like, what they're saying is true. Like it's kind of, it is a beautiful thing to be sober. And it, it, it you know, I don't think anybody misses being drunk. Like no. I think, I think that, that kind of drink or, or maybe two drinks, had a special thing that gives you that slight buzz and confidence boost. Like maybe from time to time, you might think like, nah, it'd be quite fun to have a little margarita or whatever. But but ultimately, if you sum up the two ways of life, they're not even comparable. Like one is awesome and one sucks. Yeah. And it's kind of like, you know, you just pick a lane in my case. I, mean, I think it's different for everybody how you deal with that kind of issue. My husband, strangely, had a very similar moment of clarity and the conclusion was, I'm going to stop today. And he has managed to, and I know it's very much a daily thought and a practice, but, you know, I'm certainly very proud of him. But I think he, we've talked a lot about the grief that he's felt since having that clarity because he was numbing layers of it or some of the feelings around it, or he's certainly experiencing things for the first time with very fresh, open eyes. Have you approached grief with any clarity or any, I don't know, layers peeled back that you weren't feeling before? Um, making the film felt like a grieving process for me. Uh, and I kind of became more emotional than I ever have been before on the mountain. Not all of it on camera. But kind of, you know, it felt for me like I, like I was really coming to grips with the loss, but it is something I would love to explore more. I know my wife would think that was a good idea, but I kind of don't want to lose, you know, who I am either. I think not you can that, do not, both. Yeah, I'm sure you probably can do both, can't you? I think you can. <laughs> yeah. But I think what you have experienced on this trip is just huge. I, I can't imagine you could get much closer to that grief, being in the setting, walking the same footsteps as your brother knowing you're in close proximity. I think, you know, you're facing it head on already. I don't think you could get any closer to to those feelings. So you're you're clearly willing to to explore grief and, and how it's impacted you and your family and to dig into that. I think, you know, you're already doing it clearly. I think it's such a universal feeling as well. That's part of the reason that I think the film can be impactful for, for people because... You know, you'd be hard pressed to find somebody that hasn't lost someone, yeah. you know, in their life. And I think any mother or sibling will understand the journey. And yeah, I just, I look, I hope people love it. You know, we, we for the last 20 or so years, we, we set up, you know, a small foundation in his name. And when I was going through the, well, shall we document it or shall we not document it? phase the foundation was pretty prominent in my thoughts you know kind of we've been doing these you know the marathon de sable and the ice ultra and bits and bobs to raise 
you know, tens of thousands here and there, you know, over time, it's quite a lot of money. And we've been able to build, you know, five schools in remote, um, you know, rural parts of Tanzania. And, and we, we're, we've, we're helping uh, or have helped 7,620 kids. And that's, that's great. That's but incredible. It's cool. And it, it is, thank you. Well, it's, it's, it's great. But my, the way I'm geared is I just want to do I just want to do more. I know Mike would want us to do more. I just, I just kind of, if we can turbocharge that foundation by shining a light on on Mike, so that when we're doing these events, people go, I remember that kid from that film. Actually, you know what this foundation is doing is is interesting and great. You know, I think you know I'll, I'll give three quid, five quid, whatever it might be. I think that could really help us do more in his name, and I think that's. I always want more, by the way, like like with anything, like, you know, 10x, whatever you're looking at, you know, that's kind of where I want to be. But particularly in the case of helping kids. And actually, it would be awesome to do something here as well, or, you know, just, just, just have that ability to help more kids would be phenomenal. Mm. And I think we kind of hit, we've hit a bit of a, what do we do next? Yeah. You know, and, and that was quite a big part for me of you know it makes sense to make this film in the hope that people watch it people understand who he was and people want to be involved in 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 helping people well they will and it's it, it's a beautiful thing that you're doing with the foundation and it's interesting because you just said there I hope people watch the film and see this kid because obviously Mike was 22 he was very young and you've had this strange moment I guess of understanding and processing that you're much older than the age of 22 now but you still obviously see him as your big brother I mean that's such a strange thing to work out you know how how you see him as a big brother but he was only 22 when he died yeah no it's well yeah that's that's I at the time of making the film I was about 12 years older than him and at the time of his death he was 12 years older than me so it was kind of like yeah. perfectly, perfectly kind of parallel, if that's correct, which it's probably not. Uh, and kind of it felt there was quite a few parts in the film that, that were mirrored in, in that regard. And, you know, I, I said the other day that, you know, I'm his big brother now, right? It feels like I'm kind of going out to find him and bring him home as, you know, my little brother. But I'll always see him as my big brother because that's mm. how I remember him. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. So you already mentioned that the first attempt to recover Mike's body was not successful. And that was a lot to take on. And you were at the time, you know, trying to work out, okay, well, what's the plan B? Your brilliant team of climbers went on a second mission to look for Mike's body. And sadly, they did not find him again. So that was crushing to you. But 
alongside this, I guess, realisation that you might come home without Mike, you had another idea. Can you tell us a bit about that? Yeah, so we had to take data is the wrong word, but we had we had to we had we had to take learnings from the first search. And there was plenty of snow on the mountain. And we always knew that the second search would have less snow because it's later in the season, slightly warmer. So, you know, if we felt that there was a lot of snow in the first search and that Michael was perhaps, you know, could have been in sight but was just buried by snow, we're never gonna see him. And that's the kind of that's what I was clutching onto for hope. But then you're like lying in base camp thinking, well, I need, you know, I literally need the snow to come off the mountain for us to have a successful second search. And every so often you'd wake up in the middle of the night and it would be snowing, you know, and it's like, it was just really kind of gut-wrenching. There was there was nine days, I think, between the two searches. And in that time, obviously, at base camp, I had plenty of moments of doubt you know where i thought to myself if we don't find him on the second search and we go home empty-handed that will be a tremendous waste of not time because as i've already said you know i had this incredible journey on the mountain but resource perhaps it would be a you know the the fact that these guys have gone up there twice you know all the way up to the summit to for us to to, to do nothing and, and not bring him home would have been unfortunate so we just began to think you know there is a there's a record of bodies and where where they're supposed to be on the mountain you know more recent bodies obviously are more likely to be at their final resting place bodies move on everest high winds um, the surface can become icy and slippery so if that happens and the body is loose wind comes blows it off bodies can be blown down into nepal or tibet and in any case, that's, you know, very unlikely to find them once they're completely off track. They can also be kind of swallowed up by the mountain, so they can be covered in snow. That snow then turns to ice. That then becomes a new kind of layer on the mountain, and, and they're, you know, lost in the mountain. So the more time I spent on Everest and the more I began to think about all of this and just the sheer scale of the thing, like it's it's mad to to think that, ordinary climbers or even good climbers you know take one step every 60 seconds call it when you get to the top and that's you know on heavily assisted oxygen it's kind of like it's a very difficult place to orchestrate a search and, and recovery you know it's not a football pitch and and it's you know uh you know 8500 meters you know you're 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 in the middle of a death zone and and it, it's a complicated thing and i i, I kind of my optimism was slowly getting crushed yeah. kind of out of me as I just realized, you know, that it was going to be less and less likely that we were going to find him. And that was quite painful at the time because I was thinking, you know, that we were really disappointing him and that we were so close to him. He's somewhere here, like, you know, within a few hundred meters and we're going to we're going to leave without him. And it was actually making me quite upset that we'd literally, you know, come all of this way after a year and a half and that we were going to turn around without him. And I just thought to myself, you know, this whole process is something that we want. And if it's, if it's something that we could offer somebody else, we should certainly explore that option because we were finding bodies, you know, where we had, we, we uncovered several bodies and there are other bodies that are, you know, on, on the track within sites, there are bodies in and around camp four, I was naive to that. I 
I was shocked. I didn't realise that was the case until I watched this documentary. If you climb Everest, you will physically have to step over bodies to get to the summit. And I knew that before making the documentary. And again, it's one of the reasons that a body recovery for Michael was something I wanted so much. I, I wasn't keen on the idea of him being some kind of tourist attraction. Not that they are tourist attractions, no. but, you know, some kind of monuments type thing that there's an Indian climber uh, just past the South Summit called Green Boots. And he's a marker on the mountain. So, like, you know, have you passed Green Boots yet? You know, and it's kind of like, didn't want that for Mike. No. Um, just as I'm sure Green Boots <laughs> probably doesn't want it for no. you know, himself or, or, or his, his family, right? So I began to think, well, I'm sure there are other families that are in the exact same position that we're in. Maybe if Nims was willing to take on the risk, there may be a body that we could recover that is not completely off the beaten track, that would be a more straightforward recovery. Um, and I began to kind of, we this, we, we had we had generated a, a kind of list of, of known bodies because we wanted to make sure that any bodies that we found we could fully identify. And, and you know, we, we just wanted to make sure that we had as much accurate information as we could, you know, doing all of this. And sorry, so long story short, there was a, I was talking to, to Mingma Tenzing, who's just phenomenal, like the greatest character, zips up and down Everest like a mountain goat, you know, un unreal, this guy. And by the way, just quickly, like nod to the, nod to the search and recovery team. On their second search, they went from base camp directly to camp four in a single push. And, wow. And like that is, it's, that would kill us. You know, it doesn't matter how fit we no, are. No, no, like, no. Whatever. Like, you, no chance. See you later, mate. Wow. And, you know, and they're, they're just, they make the most amazing time. And anyway, they were just, they were just incredible. It felt awesome getting to know them. Mm. And I spoke to him and I just said, look, Mike would have been very close to you guys, right? Like Sherpas and, um, and this community. And, you know, you touched on praying in the monasteries and you know there's this very strong sense of connection to local people yeah. when you're climbing Everest and I thought you know initially we we had we had found quite a famous body on on the mountain I won't name him again sorry just because I'm not sure if yeah, we should or shouldn't but and I in my head I was like well maybe we'll get in touch with his family and see if you know they would like him to be returned because we found him right I don't know. Sorry, I'm, I'm I'm really beating about the bush here, but but there, I, I I suddenly just thought, wouldn't it be great actually to recover the body of a Sherpa whose family probably aren't in the position to to do that themselves, right? Financially, yeah. Um, and you know, I had a chat with Ming Matenzing and and just said, you know, you don't happen to know any Sherpas who who have lost their lives, and it was kind of almost an immediate thing. He said. Um, that he knew of a Sherpa who died last year just outside Camp 4, that he is fully aware of where the body is. His name is Wang Dorchi, knows the family really well. Body's in plain sight just outside Camp 4. Died last year, having just summited. So I, I just thought, well, you know, why look, at, why look any further, right? So so kind of said, you know, could, could you... Could you arrange for me to meet his family? Because, you know, we had these nine days before the second search. And obviously in the back of my mind, I was always keen that the priority be to, to find Mike. You know, we'd come all this way to, to find Michael, of course. But I just wanted somebody 
to benefit in some way from the considerable efforts that we had put into this search and recovery mission. And uh, I flew down and met the family, and this is in the film, of course. You know, Wang Dorchi's mother w- was was you know very very tearful and 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 couldn't quite understand why we would want to help them in this way and. There was synergy there with the brother as well. Um, you were the Ming, same age. Mingma was my age, and having lost his brother, and the brother had three kids. Um, I have three kids. You know, there was just a lot of parallels. Again, you know, the, the, there's parallels that run all the way through the film, both between Mike and me and this family, despite us having obvious differences. Um, there was a lot of similarity, and you know, I, I spoke to. Mingma, the brother, and just said, look, we'll, we'll do our best. And, you know, when the second search failed and Nims was happy to take on the risk because, you know, carrying this, this body, anybody off the mountain is risky, but of course they had already agreed to recover Mike, you know, if they found Mike. So in the back of my mind, I thought, well, you know, Nims may be very willing just to, to do this for me as part of what we'd agreed. Um, and he was, you know, and, and so they recovered uh, Wang Dorchi, uh, instead, and I flew down the valley in a helicopter with him, and that was a that was a strange moment for me because that was the kind of closing of the Everest chapter, and literally flying away from Mike. Mike is still up there somewhere, and, and you know I'm 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 with Wang Dorchi, and then the film actually it wasn't as blood curdling in the film as it was in real life when we got out of the helicopter wang dorchi's daughter who was the same age as me when i lost mike another parallel was i've never heard anything like it and and it's in the film yeah but i remember watching the film thinking like that that's been that's kind of been toned down a fair amount on where it was for me in real life she was like so upset and in a way was being given the opportunity to 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 grieve her father and see her father's body for the first time which is something that i never had at her age and at first i felt like we you know made a mistake doing this because she was so unhappy because she was just like i i can't even, like it was it was it, hard to watch. It was watch. a really it was a really difficult moment for me to process. Um because it felt like I I had caused that pain almost, which you know I feel you know obviously I haven't caused the pain but but it but kind of I just felt oh god like she wouldn't be crying like that if I hadn't just done this for their family but you know the the mother was you know beyond grateful in Buddhist culture a soul can't pass to the afterlife until such a time that they've been cremated. Um, they have a puja ceremony and they, they burn the body and that is the body passing to the afterlife. And I learned this in the monastery on my way to the mountain and thought to myself, it was another reason for wanting to recover a Nepali climber instead of a Western climber because our culture around death is is very different. And I knew that this family wouldn't have being able to like us you know mourn and process his death properly because he's stuck on the mountain in his body you know to them he hasn't passed um to the afterlife so i thought that it would be a nice thing for them to be able to to do that and and that is kind of pretty much how the film 
concludes, you know, with uh, with us doing our we speak to Mike at the end, albeit just to um, we've erected something in, in kind of his name, a can in Scotland so that, you know, we can kind of go and visit him as such, but no physical body. And, and again, there's a kind of parallel between the two, like one puja ceremony, which is kind of funeral esque and and then our family around the can. And then the daughter looks very happy. She's mm. she's kind of and I just feel that, you know, ultimately, if anybody could have benefited from our time on the mountain, uh, it's great that they did. And uh I spoke to his brother the other day. Uh, did you? Yeah, yeah. And he's he's got a strange way of speaking, doesn't he? <laughs> he's kind he's of He's so lovely, yeah. this guy. Yeah, and he's uh he was um yeah, he was, you know, very complimentary about the help that he received in the film. And, you know, we wish him all the best. It's a beautiful thing that you did as a team. I mean, it's wonderful. And you can see everything you've just described, that raw emotion, perhaps that closure that was very needed, especially for his kids. But, of course, you're left without that closure. Do you feel you've had some through this process? Yeah, I, I kind of felt, yeah, absolutely. And, and I, I don't really know what to make of that word, kind of closure. Mm. I, I, I feel I'll never forgive the people for their actions in 1999. I think it was a great shame that that happened. Um, I'm not angry about it anymore. When I look at pictures of Michael now, I smile instead of feeling kind of pain. I know that he's not in plain sight on the mountain and that he is buried and resting uh, he's in a very special part of the world, incredibly spiritual, full of prayer and hope and great people. So I'm less concerned about him being alone and cold and face down without us as such. Um, I mean, to be honest, if you were to be buried anywhere, it would be a pretty amazing place, um, minus the visitation. But no, I'm just, I'm just far more at peace with the whole thing. And actually, just I feel like I know him much more and people who are part of our family that never knew him. So new people like my wife's family and my brother's family. Some of them were at the premiere and they said to me afterwards, you know, I feel like I really know Mike mm. now. And that was literally the whole point. Yeah. Well, it's, it's incredible. It's a beautiful documentary. I'm so happy that you've, had this experience and have had all of these feelings and have been able to help other people. It's an amazing thing to watch and really generous of you to share it with everybody and, and put it in this medium because I think it will help a tremendous amount for people who are grieving, who are grieving where there's uncertainty or a factor that is unknown. I think it's going to bring a lot of peace and um, and hope to people as well. It's beautiful. Well, thanks so much. And being sat here chatting to you about it is is great. And thank you for for having me. And and um, you know, I love what you do, and feels uh, feels special to me to be here. So thank you. Really loved chatting to Spencer. I have met Spencer over the years here and there, and I've always found him utterly hilarious and entertaining. But what I loved about not only watching the documentary, but Chatting to Spencer for this episode of Happy Place, it was just so wonderful to see a whole different side of him and to really go there. And 
ask some pretty big questions and get some massive answers. Thank you, Spencer. I really, really loved our chat. And if you want to watch Finding Michael, which I really, really urge you to do, it is phenomenal. You can find it on Disney+. Plus. Spencer worked with Bear Grylls on this film. And if you want more on mental and physical adventures, do go back and listen to our recent Happy Place episode with Bear himself. There was a lot of really great stuff in there about mental resilience, which I loved exploring with him. I'll be back next week, but in the meantime, come and say hey on Instagram. We're at Happy Place Official. Until then, a massive thank you again to Spencer, to the producer Anushka Tate at Rethink Audio, and to you beautiful people, you lovely souls. I'll chat soon. Mom deserves better than a drugstore card. This Mother's Day, surprise her with a truly special personalized card from Moonpig. Add your favorite photos, a heartfelt message, and we'll even mail it for you the same day, all for just $5. From mom to grandma, we have something to celebrate every mom in your life. Every mom deserves a Moonpig card. Get 50% off your first card at Moonpig.com. Moonpig.com